All right, let's do All this. Right. Yep. Yes, indeed. You all right? Oh. Mm-hmm. You sure? Uh-huh. Oh. You look... You look different. You look like you're sitting a little higher than usual. Are you... Mm-hmm. You're okay? Mm-hmm. Hey, have you seen that uh, World War One era helmet that I had in here? I, I brought it on for the show, and I can't find it. Do you, have you seen it? Hey, is that blood coming down your leg? Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Folks, I have discovered two things. I can either squeak in Morse code, <laughs> or I know exactly what it sounds like if we were to take Mickey Mouse hostage. <laughs> How you doing, by the way? You alright? Um... Emotionally, I'm fine. <laughs> really? I thought emotionally you'd probably be pretty devastated. No, no, no. I'm I'm a consummate actor. I'm, I am okay. My rectum you... is, in other words, is clenching very tight, though. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need a ring that help you at all? One of those little inflatable rings? Those little bagels? Yeah. No, I'm good, man. I'm good. That was pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> see, sometimes I wish we were a video podcast, only so that you could see... Some of the performances we give, like, with our expressions on our faces... They're pretty damn good. ...are pretty good, and I, I that goes just as much for Eric as it does for, for I think, some of the stuff that I I have learned say, to I've become done. an actor on this show. I'm not saying I'm a particularly good one, but I have definitely learned to become an actor. I yeah. would say, don't sell yourself short, sir. You've got some talent. I have my moments. I have my moments. There's 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 sometimes where I just don't get it, but there's, there's others where, quite frankly, it's comedic gold. Yes, well... It's becoming more frequent, I will say. So that's a that's a sign of talent is developing. Oh, very much so. Oh, All right. right. Well, hey, we're back at this again. Yes, we are indeed. Week number two. Uh, and what are we talking about? Let's remind our, our listeners. What are we talking about? Well, folks, if you didn't listen last episode, stop. Drop your phone. Well, don't drop your phone because that would be bad. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. But stop. Go back. Listen to episode 94. We're all in. Bar one, because we're talking about the war to end all wars, right? The ultimate cliche. It's exactly, because it was totally not the war to end all wars. Yeah. We're talking about World War One. We're yes. still continuing on that path. We are, and it's one hell of a path to go on, because folks, literally, we've just gotten started. I mean, we ended it uh, with the sinking of the Lusitania, and with that, uh, the mid part of 1915. So we're, we're just halfway through that year, not even halfway through that year. And yeah. there, there's still a lot more to happen. Yeah, and to to recap, we're doing this because we were talking about how, while this was a world event, it did, did eventually have some important impact on American culture and on American history. So let's talk briefly about, just to recap the Lusitania. So America, having its strong economic ties to Great Britain at this point, had been building arms on its own industrial power, uh, but was smuggling them to the British because they did not want to break their foreign policy of isolationism. So um, that's why they were doing so. German U-boats come around as they were exploring naval warfare. That's what we'll say. But um, they they basically sunk the Lusitania, which was not like a normal mercantile vessel like they were, we were used to. It was a cruise liner. So 1,200 people died, mostly British, but... Uh, 128 of them were American citizens. Yeah. And the American papers went nuts with this. Oh, yeah. It, it really could have been the thing that would have brought America into the war if it wasn't for Germany 
then kind of uh, ceasing to, to sink American ships without warning. It, it, it still did some pretty horrible things with its U-boats and continued to sink uh, a lot of ships. In fact, 5,000 ships would eventually be sunk by, by U-boat attacks. Yeah, and I'm just guessing at this point, but assuming that Germany did not see America as a th- military threat at this point. They were just trying to cut off the supply to the British, and that was that. Would you, was, is that a fair assessment? Uh, I think some some historians might argue against that. I think that Germany may have always been concerned about what America was doing, but hopeful that the the anti-war sentiment in your in in America was strong enough to keep it out of the fight, because the Americans continually referred to this, and even after the the war had completed, as the European War. Correct. They they didn't really see themselves as being a part of it, didn't really want to be a part of it, but knew that they kind of had to be. There was yeah. really no choice. And America had its own issues it was working out at that point in time. The last thing they wanted to do was get involved in foreign entanglements. Yeah. Uh, they, they, we were dealing with our own progressive era we were going through. A lot of things were changing uh, for the better and some some for the worse uh, yeah. around these points in time. So, But nonetheless, America kept uh, an eye and kept an eye close on its ally of Britain because we shared a common language we shared a common desire for democracy, and we shared the hope of peace. We wanted there to be peace. And I think America was always looking for that option, always looking for some way to introduce it uh, without hopefully having to enter the battle. Now, we know, of course, from history that that didn't really happen, that America eventually would have to lend its troops. Uh, but we're, we're still not quite there yet. Right. Because 1915 in Europe would continue to be a very bloody, uh, very nasty affair for the countries of Europe. And it was the first time that we started really analyzing warfare as closely as we were. Not just warfare, not just strategy and tactics and the amount of supplies that were being consumed and the amount of casualties that were being counted. But we were really taking in and absorbing the effect of war. It was traumatizing. It was painful. It was devastating. And with it came some of the the first uses of the word shell shock, for example, from these uh, relentless bombardments. Because when you're at a stalemate, all you essentially can do with one another is fire your munitions at each other, try to essentially disturb your enemy. Uh, And then another term that was also used at this time was going over the top. And do exactly that. Jump over your trench. Hope you didn't get mowed down by enemy machine gun fire. Uh, and and make it to their trench. About, sorry, we haven't even talked about the howitzer at this point. Right? I mean... We haven't talked about Big Bertha either. No. Uh, one of the largest howitzers ever created. And uh, a, an impressive feat of, of German engineering. Well, while the machine gun was not new, they had perfected it by this point in time. At least to their perception. And the British just were, were kind of, even though, surprisingly enough, even though they were a well-armed state, I just remember keep thinking of this, this one scene in the movie War Horse. Great movie that depicts yeah. World War One. There's a great scene where there's all these British soldiers attacking the Germans. And you see all these British cavalrymen going through. And they're jumping over and you're seeing, you're hearing the machine gun going off. And the shot is, as they're going over the trench... Only the horses are coming back. Yeah. All the people are getting mm-hmm. knocked horses off. Horses were smart. Yeah. Horses came back. Yeah. Um, but just like they were being, they were literally being mowed down yeah. by 
these new forms of, of machine gun warfare. Wave after wave after wave of young men were sent over the top. And uh, I've heard many uh, kind of reports and interviews of survivors of the first war. A lot of it was filmed in the 1960s and 70s. Some of it surviving, believe it or not, into the late 90s. But um, one of them stands out to me. I can't remember what documentary it was, but this this gentleman who was, I think he, I think I remember he was born in like 1898 or something like that. So he was like 16 or something during the war or the outbreak of war. And he looks the camera right in the eye and he says, if you ever met a man who went over the top and said that he wasn't afraid, he was a damn liar. Yeah. I mean, this guy stares down the camera with this cold stare that sticks with you. I mean, that that those are the eyes of somebody who was traumatized, who was deeply affected by what they were seeing, which was the continual death of their friends. And it was so horrible because in England, at the outset of the war, when people were signing up and conscripting and people were joining the military, it was not uncommon for whole neighborhoods to go and conscript with one another or whole clubs and pubs and friends and people, you know, brothers who wanted to go and, and fight together. And the British soldiers, or sorry, the British commanders thought it would be good for morale to keep these friends together, to keep their spirits and hopes up. And what ended up happening was uh, entire neighborhoods would be completely wiped out. Awful. And to have that weight on your shoulder, to have to go back home and be the one person who survives. The guilt. The extraordinary guilt. Trench yeah. warfare was a nasty thing. Uh, another fascinating development and truly terrifying was the mine. Mm. Mines didn't really exist up until this point. And some of them were, were, were carried out in some really incredible ways. I talked about a little bit, just very briefly, I mentioned it on the last episode, where you had these tunnelers whose job it was, was to go from one trench to the other, digging a tunnel under the enemy trench, just right where the soldiers were. And, and, and many enemy soldiers said that they could sometimes, when it was quiet enough, hear the sound of pickaxes uh, being used to dig out the dirt right underneath them. So there were enemy soldiers right beneath their feet laying explosives. Uh, I can't remember which battle it was. I, I remember reading this, uh, but there was something along the lines of 30 mines that were detonated at the same time, almost in unison, across a long stretch of the front uh, as an uh, as attack on the, on the Germans. And it was so loud that people in the south of England could hear it detonate. Wow. And where so, where was the where where was the trench being? This laid? is in the Western Front. So this is this is in uh, Eastern France. Oh my God! Yeah. Wow. Hundreds of miles away. That that's that's how deafening the sound was. How loud it was. Uh, so things that that had never been seen in warfare before were being were being seen at this. We were point. starting to really see. This was the first industrialized war, right? Oh yeah. So I mean, we're starting to see war on a scale we've never seen before. So. And uh, 1915 also marked really the, the turning point for the Russians uh, because to this point, 3.8 million Russian casualties had been recorded. We are a year and a half into the war. 3.8 million casualties. This is not necessarily dead, but these are people who have been wounded, maimed, or are missing in action. Right. So, you know, this is 
pretty devastating. And the Eastern Front was moving more and more against the Russians. Warsaw was lost at this point. The fate of Poland uh, would continue to be thrown back and forth between Russia and Germany for decades to come, uh, much to the to the detriment of the Polish people and to to of course, you know, as we later find out at the world Second World War to the to the Polish Jews uh, who were slaughtered in, in concentration camps. Uh, this is the beginning of all of that. And it's the beginning of the end for Tsar Nicholas II. Yeah. You know, he actually ends up taking command of the Russian army uh, in the latter half of 1915 to to try to get a, a grasp of the situation. Well, he pretty much tried to consolidate all of his power. He wasn't just trying to take control oh, militarily. Oh, he was everywhere. Yeah, he was basically trying to rule as an absolute monarch. Yeah, and we look at his relatives that are over causing all these problems in, in Germany and Austria-Hungary. They wore militarists they wanted fights they wanted battles they wanted territory you know what nicholas wanted a quiet life yeah he wanted to go out and be a country gentleman and hunt and participate with you know military parades and wear his funny little you know sultan's hat with his little little feather on it and and you know be the 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 rich guy and have a nice life he didn't want to fight. He didn't want a war. Russia didn't want a war. And the last thing he wanted was more of a reason for his people to hate his living guts and to overthrow the monarchy. Yeah, morale was already for, low for the monarchy at this point. I'm sorry, for the Russian people towards the monarchy, I should oh, say. Oh, yeah, there had already been failed attempts at coups and, and the you know the Russian people rising up. Uh, this would repeat itself again and have a lasting impact for many long years to come. Uh, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves uh, because I, I think that we need to finish out 1915 uh, and move on to 1916 because 1916 would feature two absolutely devastating moments in human history. Uh, one of them very, very early, and that was the Battle of Verdun. This was a 10-month battle. Nearly 10 months. Yeah. yeah unbelievable. Well, only by three days. If... Yeah. 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 Uh, the amount of casualties has been estimated at close to 1 million. Um, the amount of dead on the Allied side, all French, was 156,000. Oh, my God. The number of dead in from the German Empire, 143,000. Wow. Uh, a virtual stalemate. I mean, the casualties can be pretty much cut in half uh, with, with a knife. And there was no real decisive moment where either side felt like they had won this battle. It, it crossed back and forth, essentially being a, a German strategy to capture the, the French off guard. Uh, the idea was to kind of provoke them into a fight where the Germans had taken the high ground and then use that opportunity of these counteroffenses that the French would be leading to catch them between their artillery placements and uh, essentially wipe them out and destroy them. Uh, a tactic that had been used earlier in the war quite effectively, uh, but this time the French were not taking the bait. And even though the French were, were wiser to this strategy and plan, they still could not help the overwhelming uh, onslaught of German forces. And the Germans continued to push, 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 and push, but they did so in such a way that they really kind of exhausted themselves. 
they they didn't have the reinforcements that they needed to make the final push. So they spent all these months slowly gaining territory, slowly moving forward, only to have the French then rally and beat them back pretty much to the exact same mm. place they had been. I think there was only seven miles of actual territory gained as a result of this. And a virtually insignificant number. Yeah. Seven miles, one million casualties. If we didn't already have a title for this episode, I think that would kind of have to be it. Unbelievable. The man lost his life for what was ultimately such a small piece of land. Yeah, t- absolutely tiny. And it would set the stage because at that point it was probably the single most devastating battle anyone on the planet had ever seen. But it would then set the stage for the Battle of the Somme that um, would also have nearly identical in terms of casualties. Uh, And again, absolutely no breakthroughs for the Allies. Whereas the Germans were on the offensive before, the Allies felt like they needed to make their big push. Each side said, well, okay, we, we cannot continue this stalemate. If we do this, we'll simply all run out of supplies and it'll end right where it is. Uh, something the the Allies would have been more or less okay with. They wouldn't have wanted to lose as much territory as they had in France, but they, they wanted an end to this war. The Germans, however, that was unacceptable because at this point they were committed. If you didn't move forward, you were going to fall back. And, and, the, and Kaiser Wilhelm knew this. So with that in mind, the Battle of the Somme begins, and that is, uh, again, another lengthy campaign. Uh, this one takes place from July to November of 1916. Which, I mean, in in comparison to the Battle of Verdun, not nearly as bad. I mean, but that's it was a four-month battle. doesn't mean it's, it, it makes it any better. In fact, it's actually worse because of the amount of casualties that were lost in less time, if you think about it. Well, the casualties were actually almost identical. There, there was nearly one million. Correct, but what I'm saying, nearly one million lost over ten months versus one million lost over four months. Okay, sure. Uh, if anything, I think that's more horrific. That's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I apologize. I think I missed your point for a no, second. No worries. Um, and we also haven't talked about yet that the British had one minor strategic advantage at this point, which was that they were introducing the tank into the battlefield. That's right. Um, a very minor advantage because the tank proved in this particular engagement to not be the decisive uh, blow that was needed to, to break yeah. over the trenches and, and get over. The the tank at this point was very small in number, was breaking down constantly, uh, was yeah. not proven. It needed more time. It needed more development. And uh, the, the Germans never really invested much time yeah. in tanks themselves, which is so ironic considering how effectively they would use the tank in the Second World War. And this is so funny because, I'm sorry, this is a brief tangent, but... The tank had been tried so many times in history. Yeah. I mean, the ancient Greeks had a, had a theory for a box, which everyone would just kind of carry it. That would be their kind of their their, their battling ram that everyone, right. no one could penetrate. Da Vinci had an idea for a horseless carriage that was gear-powered that would have effectively operated like a tank would have operated. But all of them were, were missing the, the key component that the tank really needed, and that was its sheer overwhelming weight and force yeah uh which would be effectively achieved later in the war 
And the Germans, which, like I said, kind of came late to the party in that sense, they did not um, develop their own tanks very uh, effectively. They only had, I think, one or two versions of a tank that was created. But they did capture British tanks and then turn them back against the British. Well, at least they were resourceful, I guess. Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, it's, it's worth mentioning, and again, the Battle of the Somme is so devastating and so sad, and there's so many horrific stories that have come out of this from the people themselves. Um, but it's worth mentioning that the British Empire really took a, a, as many of its uh, foreign uh, holdings and, and sent as many people as possible into this particular battle. So there were people from all around the world from Bermuda, Canada, India, Newfoundland, uh, you know, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, everywhere, uh, supporting the French in this in this endeavor. And uh, it was, like I said, kind of a mess. Neither side really gained anything, but both of them touted it as a victory. Uh, whereas the the British stop the the germans from from making big advances the the british gained at least some experience with some new technology uh and neither one of them really accomplished much but that was the nature of the first world war Mm -hmm. lots of death little accomplishment however though it's worth noting that the other aspect of the first world war was this extreme moving forward in technological advancement uh, 1915 and 1916 would see the first use of the flamethrower. Do you know what uh, what they call the flamethrower in, in German? Because it is actually a a German invention. Uh, I have no idea. It was known as the Flamenwaffer. The Flamenwaffer. The Flamenwaffer. So it'd be the Flamenwaffer. Yeah. I'm serious. So the Flamenwaffer sounds like a burger you would get at Burger King. Yeah, or, or uh, as was described to me earlier when I told a colleague of ours at work, a, a cookie. Uh, <laughs> really? It sounds a lot like a cookie. Yeah, it does. It sounds like a flaming wafer. And there was two versions of the flamethrower. There was the single-person version, uh, which was the, uh, the Klein Flamenwaffer. And then you had the, the two-person version with the huge fuel tank on it. Uh, and that was the, uh, the Gross Flamenwaffer. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, and it was, a you know, a weapon of more of intimidation than it was uh, of anything, but I can only imagine having this, this stream of flaming gasoline come flying at you, uh, from one trench across to another, uh, being a pretty impactful event. I mean, it's gotta be pretty terrifying. It's crazy. It's, it's like this guns war is nuts. Yeah. Guns weren't enough. So yeah. let's come up with something even more terrifying. Yeah. Flames. Um, well, we should also probably mention at this point that the politics were starting to shift a little bit too. Um, Britain had to change governments, right? They had to change prime ministers. Um, even though America was not getting involved in the war, Woodrow Wilson was reelected on the very policy of, he kept us out of the war. Uh-huh. He kept us out of the war for like a year. <laughs> 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 so... Um, because as we would get, as we would get into 1917, we would see quite the opposite. Yeah. And I think, you know, at this point, America gets very, very, uh, vocal in its dislike of what's happening, um, particularly critical of Germany, obviously. And stuff was starting to go down in Russia too. Uh, we now know him, the mad monk Rasputin, right? Was, was murdered. Very famously murdered Mm -hmm. by the czar. Again. And again, and, and again, and again, <laughs> and we could do a whole episode on Rasputin. But let me give you the the quick readers' digest one minute. So uh, the Romanovs 
uh, being that they were a family that had done a lot of intermarrying. They were known for, you know, genetic defects. One of them being that they were all hemophiliacs, and particularly yes. uh, Nicholas and Katerina's son, um, Alexis, was a bad hemophiliac. Well, this man, man Gregory Rasputin, claims that he, through the power of hypnosis, can calm down the bleeding. And hemophilia is a terrible condition. Yeah. Basically, it means your body, your your blood just doesn't congeal. It doesn't have enough hemoglobin uh, to do so. Or and it's not hemoglobin. It just doesn't have enough of the, the right chemicals, compounds, to, to create clotting. So the Tsarina is taken by him, and he she is convinced that Rasputin is his holy man. And he was far from it. The man uh, was pretty much a phony. Um, and the court was not happy with the, the influence he was gaining over the Tsarina. So uh, Nicholas plotted to have her murdered, and originally by poison. Turns out that didn't work, because one of the things Rasputin also liked to do was ingest poisons for fun to build immunity. <laughs> As one does. As one does. So they try to do that, and they think the poison's going to kill him, and he just starts talking for hours and hours and hours. And Telling like, jokes, and, and, and they're all just like smiling and nodding, just like, <laughs> is it is it, is it going to happen? What's... <laughs> What's what's going on? <laughs> you, how much did you put in the cakes? Seriously, uh, and they're all just smiling. He's like, oh, I put in a lot, <laughs> you, know? you know, and it's not working. So finally, Nicholas just gets so pissed off, he goes into the room, grabs a gun, and just shoots him. And so they're like, okay, is he dead? Okay, he's dead. Okay, so we put him down in the cellar. And when they think he's all dead, no, Rasputin was a big man. Yeah, he was like six foot five. Yeah, it gets up and starts doing lunges. I think. He he literally he doesn't he leaps up and lunges at the person who was trying to contain his body, and goes out running into the storm. Mind you, this is New Year's Eve, so it is the dead of winter in Russia and the coldest winter on record to that point. Now you would think at that point it would be hypothermia that gets him. No, 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 no. It's not that poison. It's not the gunshots. It's not the hypothermia that gets him. It's that he couldn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> it's his Achilles heel. Because they shoot him again, he jumps into the water to save himself and realizes, oh crap, I can't swim, and he drowns. And that's what did it. And the reason we know that is because they found water in his lungs when they re when they recovered the body. And that's because he didn't know how to swim or he just was so wounded badly that he couldn't swim. Uh, that part I don't know for sure. I like to think it's because he couldn't swim. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why you should always have those little water wings He's with like, you. I didn't bring my floaties. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> I die now. Oh, well. Uh, that's Putin said. <laughs> He's kind of, I mean, he's kind of like the Terminator. <laughs> like, I almost, you know, I know that it's kind of ironic considering that Arnold Schwarzenegger is an Austrian, but, you know, I, I kind of imagine him being like this unstoppable force that no matter how many times he gets hit by a car or like crushed under machinery or shot, his face gets torn off, he just keeps going. He might have been a cyborg. We'll, we'll never know. God, I, I have to share this one random factoid, though, and this is the weirdest thing. The one part of Rasputin that is available to see is his penis. It's always the penis. It's always it is jarred in formaldehyde. Why? I'm sure it's his. Well, he was known for being well endowed. We'll just say that. And if this jar is any testament, uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. So um, it just it's it's yeah it's one of those things that when you see it you cannot unsee it. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. So, let's Ladies move. and gentlemen, tonight's weird moment on Nerds on History <laughs> has been brought to you by Rasputin's Penis. Indeed. Um, 
let's move forward, shall we? <laughs> Please, so, God, yes. <laughs> so the murder of Rasputin had, to say the least, added to what was already a turbulent political climate uh, in Russia. Yeah, I mean, the Tsarina was very much mistrusted. There was a lot of rumors being spread around her about her and Rasputin, where a lot of these stories of his promiscuous behavior, I think, might have been born from. I don't know if he really was that much of a... Oh, he was. Was he really? Yeah, but it wasn't with it wasn't with the Tsarina. It was with other women. Yeah, but that, that's where the, the rumor kind of, you know, manifests with, in, in her case, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of bad press. Lots of bad press for, for the Russian royal family. And uh, the Russian commanders uh, of the military weren't doing terribly well either. No, they weren't. So there's a lot going on in in 1916. Uh, One important thing to kind of uh, set up for the rest of the war is explaining a little bit about what's called the Hindenburg Line. Paul von Hindenburg was a very intelligent person. He was well known for being the the strategist and the, the one to be always prepared, whereas uh, Ludendorff was a little bit more of the brash risk taker, the one to kind of, you know, 50-50, let's hope this works kind of, kind of guy. So Hindenburg realized that if anything were ever to really go wrong in Germany's favor, it needed as strong a defensive position as possible, a little ways behind most of its front. Uh, Sometimes it was the front, most of the time it was a little bit behind it, and created this extremely well-enforced defensive position that was tons of concrete and uh, rhubar and barbed wire, enormous, well-placed, you know, uh, defenses, like like powerful guns, nearly 6,000 of them uh, across the line. It was a veritable fortress. And it constantly was the biggest barrier to the Allies. Even if they could kind of push past German defenses, beating the Hindenburg Line was going to be a whole nother battle in of itself. A whole new war, really. Uh, one that would eventually get tested uh, in the last few, few months of this uh, yeah. terrifying conflict. But it's important to kind of set that precedent because this is when it was created. And and it kind of is interesting because it shows at this point now, Germany's starting to realize it may not win this war, that it could literally go either way. And what they really needed was Russia to be out of the war and America, who was looming on the horizon, to be dealt with. And that's kind of how 1917 starts. It starts with a really kind of strange event, uh, and that is the the telegram that was sent to Mexico, urging her to be on the side of the Central Powers and to go to war with the United States. Which, by modern standards, it seems like such an absurd request uh, to happen. And, I mean, it kind of was, right? It, it was in a way, but it made a lot of sense because here was a country which we talked about in our in our two-part History of Mexico episode, that had lost substantial territory to the United States. And not all that long before the outbreak of the war, keep in mind, you know, the, those territories had only been in American hands for, you know... About 50 years. 50 years or so, yeah. yeah. So it's still in, in recent memory for, for those who had fought in those battles. A few of them were around, and many stories and, and sentiments of ill will still existed. So they were trying to play that against America in, in Germany's favor. If they could convince Mexico to open up a third front, 
that is if you don't really consider what was going on in the Pacific front. I, I do, but so maybe it's a third or fourth front. Yeah. But starting that that kind of distraction is what it would really be. Yeah. Would occupy America and perhaps prevent it from coming in to the war on the on the side of of the Allies. Well, in a way, it that interception of that telegram really gave Woodrow Wilson the political fodder he needed, right? Yeah. Because at this point, he had already warned Germany against. Uh, continuing try to its submarine warfare against the country. We'd obviously already dealt with the Lusitania and very, you know, diplomatically avoided that. But now, really, in in a sense, now he could use the Monroe Doctrine to his advantage and say, hey, the war is now coming to the Western Hemisphere. They're trying to, to pit Mexico against us. And he goes to Congress and finally says, we need you to declare war. Yeah. And... One of the few times where the United States has actually declared war on a country was during was this year when it when it finally happened. Right, and, and you know you got to understand that Germany's submarine warfare played a big role in this as well because even though they had backed off after after uh, sinking the, the Lusitania, they kind of went back and forth on that policy. Yeah, and, they originally and, said they wouldn't un, they wouldn't use unprovoked. Unrestricted. Warfare. Yeah, exactly. But they kept, but they kept, like I said, they kept wavering on they it. They kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and finally, they, they completely gave up right around the time that you know it was discovered that that they were plotting to try to get America to to fight with Mexico. And at that point, they they gave up and they they began a very effective um, campaign to break break that British blockade of Germany and also inflict horrible horrible death on the seas. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that eventually. That, that That's something we, we do want to cover. I want to focus our attention, though, back on Russia for a moment, if yeah. we may. Uh, because, you know, when Russia first entered the war in 1914, uh, it really held its own. It, it did well despite its undertrained troops, largely because Tsar Nicholas II did have a, a pretty impressive you know, set of, of armor and other, you know, armed vehicles and, and equipment uh, that he didn't always accurately and effectively uh, give out to, to his, his people or train them how to use it. But, you know, he had some pretty nice toys to play with. And they, they did pretty well up until around 1915 when it stalemated and 1916 when it, it really turned against them. Uh, German and Austrian forces we were beginning uh, more and more offenses to to try to break Ger- uh, Russian will. And it was extremely effective to the point where by, you know, March 15th of 1917, uh, Nicholas II is forced to abdicate uh, and a, preven- a provisional government is declared. The government would continue the war and it would continue by essentially ruining any hope that this war was going to be over soon. Germany was in a bad shape on the Western Front. It was starting to collapse. It was not going to be able to continue this for much longer. It was not able to keep up two fronts. And there was a real opportunity with for, for the Allies, if they could get the Americans and get them there quickly, because now they were part of it. Now they had declared war. If they could get them in the trenches, they could squeeze them and destroy the central powers. Italy was making, you know, some slight advances. They had entered the war on the side of the Allies now. They had rejected 
the the previous treaty that they had had set up with Germany and Austria and really wanted some Austrian territory. Yeah. So they were they were edging for a fight. And we forget that again, this was this was not just a European war. This was a worldwide war, right? When when Britain get, went to war, they called all the colonies in. Canada fought, sure, Australia absolutely. fought. Japan fought on the side of the allies. They and, did during this war to take out German German um, you know colonial defenses yeah, that were in the Pacific exactly. And they were also like they had been New Guinea. they had been warring with the Russians not too far before here too because of the Man- whole Manchuria oh yeah <laughs> territory. So, uh, but you had now the situation where it was it was do or die, and the Allies were just so desperate to get it over with. And what happens in Russia is a series of absolutely disastrous attacks against the germans that are so poorly planned uh alexander kreninsky who was essentially the the head of the provisional government and also leader of the military at that point as well failed so miserably that it gave them exactly what they needed to take over the country and by them of course i'm referring to the bolsheviks yeah uh here is an opportunity finally for what had been building up for years, which was, you know, essentially Lenin's final uh, push to to get the government out of power, take over, and establish this socialist communist government that he had he had dreamt of and so desired. Yeah, and I gotta say, I had actually forgotten that the monarchy had abdicated at this point. That the, the royal family was essentially living in Russia but in exile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is kind of an odd contradiction of terms, but uh, so when the Bolsheviks take control in 1917, they take control pretty rapidly, and unfortunately, not unlike what happened in France, the royal family is executed, uh, but also given a state funeral, interestingly enough, yeah, and, I know, and, right. and buried. Uh, this is also a time where throughout 1917, the morale along the Western Front was being uh, periodically beaten back and, and down. Uh, you, you talk about casualties. Morale was probably number casually number number one, because everyone saw how terrible it was going for the Russians and realized that Russia would probably be out of the war one way or another pretty soon. That uh, all of the attention was going to eventually turn back onto the Western Front, and they were they were just dreading it. They were sitting in their trenches, you know, thinking about their deaths more so than they normally were, and this caused a lot of mutiny, particularly among the French. The French were done. They had had it. They had been at the center of the the front line for so long. All they wanted was an end to the bloody slaughter. And you found with that uh, French soldiers mutinying uh, by the thousands. Uh, over half a million essentially refused to continue to fight. The order came to go over the top and they said, forget it. We're staying where we are. We're staying put. Mm-hmm. Half a million. Yeah. Uh, and this continued for a couple of months, uh, from pretty much April to June of 1917. Uh, the French response to that was essentially to uh, to put a, a new military commander back into order, or back into, in, into effect. And with that, he ended up, you know, executing a lot of soldiers very publicly, uh, declaring that, you know, if you weren't going over the top, essentially you, you were a traitor and, and we know how to deal with traitors. This is what happens to him. And it's, you know, no big surprise that the French were reacting this way when you have like the week-long battle at Chamon de Den. It, it was disastrous. 
quarter of a million casualties. Only 500 yards gained. 500 yards. I would mutiny. Yeah. That's not even that's not even a touchdown. Let's put that... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a touchdown, but that's... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's a five touchdowns, but it's, 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 it's worth sorry, a quarter sorry, of a million sorry, people. Sorry, sorry. My apologies. That shows how much of a nerd I am. I don't know football all that well. <laughs> Nevertheless, that's only five touchdowns worth worth of ground. Oh, God. It was it was awful. Yeah. Um, and further battles would continue to cost even more in this year. It was terrible. But... Un- until... Yeah. Until America finally sets foot in the trenches. And patriotically, they land on the July 3rd, just before the 4th of <laughs> July, with their tanks... Uh, of course, it takes them a little time to actually get out into the trenches, but um, once they are once they are there uh, in October and they are equipped and they're ready to go, things start to change. Hope starts to return to the demoralized Correct. French and British, at least for a little bit. Yeah, because there would be events that would lead us to the very end of this war, that would take us first to this moment of hope, bring us right to the brink of despair, and then finally, with one final push of just undeniable human will, the victory is finally won for the Allies. And we are going to do something we've never done in Nerds on History, history. We're going to have a part three, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Empire Strikes Back. We are ending on a very dark note at this point. Things are not looking well for the Allies, but thankfully, next week is going to be our Return of the Jedi, right? We're going to have our moment of redemption, right? There will be no Ewoks. There will be Italians. There might there be, a be no Ewoks. <laughs> there might be a lightsaber battle. Let's there, be real there, here. There, there, there may be one or two. Yeah. Yeah. But nevertheless, it'll be a, the epic conclusion, is what we're trying to say. Yes. Of our discussion of World War One. So, uh... I guess it's time for a little listener feedback. Yes, indeed. This week in listener feedback. Uh, first of all, we got a great one from uh, our friend Alyssa, who recently was traveling uh, through Italy. Oh, the land and of the Ewoks. Actually, <laughs> actually, she was traveling all the way through through Europe, but I have to read this in, in full. So bear with me, folks. Uh, Thank you guys for all your entertainment. When working in tedious projects at work, you guys have provided me with endless entertainment and joy. I quit my job and saved all my money to travel to Europe for four months, and here I am now, in Rome, in a tent village, listening to the Pope Spock episode (laughs) to brush up before I visit the Vatican. (laughs) Love it. Beautiful. Well, traveling, I thought of you guys several times. It's great because I provide my cousin slash travel partner with loads of knowledge, but eventually had to admit where it came from and to get her into you guys as well. Something fascinating uh, I noticed was the racism toward Romanian people as well as gypsies. Mm, Of course, we talked about a bit more socially responsible episode. Uh, You guys briefly discussed this in an episode, but we also devoted a whole episode to the Roma. We did. Keep listening. You'll get to it. You'll get to it. Uh, We have... Uh, encountered a lot of racism toward Jews, particularly in Prague and Budapest, uh, of course, Czech Republic and Hungary. Uh, as the two young traveling women, we found a lot of people wanting to help. Often, they would say, watch out for Romanians or gypsies. I'm wondering if they're mixing up Romanians just for Roma as well, right? Because yeah. of the commonalities and names. Um, we started our trip in Ireland. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, where an elderly couple warned us of Romanians around the city uh, in bad neighborhoods. 
when we were in Budapest, there was a controversy brought up about some Jewish men who were killed in the riverbank of Budapest and the current president denying military involvement in killing Jews in the city during World War II. Wow. When walking around the city, there were murals of Jewish people who were killed by Hungarian soldiers. Interesting. Also while in Budapest, our host from Couchsurfing warned us of Romanian people in the city. Then during a discussion, I asked if he felt there was a strong sense of racism toward Romanians, and he replied, it's not racism, it's experience. Ooh. Yeah, interesting. No, that that's racism. Yeah. Yeah. I really found what he said to be interesting. Uh, traveling has been the most educational and amazing experience of my life, and I encourage all of you guys to travel. Probably Egypt for Eric. <laughs> yep. Uh, just wanted to share our experience. Hope to donate when I'm no longer on a traveler's budget. Uh, P.S. I saw the Pope yesterday. <laughs> uh, I wrote this before going to the Vatican and then sent it after just to clarify. That Great. makes me so happy. Feedback, yeah. I love it. You know why? Because we're being listened to as preparation for trips. That, I'm going to mark that off my bucket list. It's pretty cool. I absolutely cool. love that. Thank you always for listening to feedback. We love it, folks. And uh, you know what, Brian? If people want to give us more listener feedback, by what method can they do that? Well, they can do it through a couple methods. They can do it like Alyssa did by going to our social media, like at... Uh, our Facebook and at our Twitter at Erdonomy. By the way, we wanted to give a shout out to Kind of Epic Show. Thank you for the constant uh, feedback. Always appreciated. Though we couldn't have time to read your tweet this week. Or they can go to our website, Nerdonomy.com, Click on that Give Us Feedback icon. Ooh, ooh, ooh. What else can they do? Uh, well, they can also donate to yeah, our website. If you are like Alyssa and on a traveler's budget, you can give us a dollar. If you have got a dollar, we will take it. We will keep 93 cents of it because of, or 97 cents of it because we pay 3% to PayPal. But we will keep most of it for keeping Deuteronomy what it is. If you can pay a little more than a dollar, that's great too. If you can pay a lot more than a dollar, you can also use our audible.com affiliate link on the right. And if you do that, we'll get a small commission for signing up, even for, even for the free trial. Yeah, just try it out. Yeah. Books are good. Listening to books, awesome too. Amazing multitasking. You can drive to work and educate yourself at the same time. Kind of like listening to this podcast. God bless America. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. And folks, we really hope you've been enjoying our epic discussion of World War One, And we hope you tune in next week for our epic conclusion of We're All In Part 3. And uh, it's that time, folks. It is. So you know it. Until we meet again, stay nerdy. So tune in to us next week. Same nerd time. Same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Adios, fam. Bye. Oh, God. Hey, Eric? Yeah. It's stuck. Ah, uh, another antique. <laughs> <laughs>